All right. Uh, good evening, everybody. It's wonderful to have you all back and dealing with this uh, incredibly challenging topic that we're going to have this evening of uh, Gush Emunim. So Gush Emunim as a movement is one that you may or may not be familiar with, but one that has created a lot of controversy throughout Israeli uh, modern Israeli history. I'm going to say more in the last 50 years. But uh, I suppose more so it's, it's, it's known as the settler movement. And even though Gush Emunim in its, uh, in, in its origins doesn't exist today, uh, there's no questions that the reverberations of it and the ripples of Gush Emunim definitely are continuing until this very day. So we've got a few videos that we're going to be sharing with you this evening, along with um, some of the uh, controversies behind it. But let's, uh, we've got our screen. Let me just see if I can give me two seconds. I'm going to send you a link if you would like. Um, so if you look in the chat there, you should be the link for our source sheet this evening. And hopefully it should be good for you. All right. So a little bit of history. So this is the, uh, the state of Israel. The, 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 the blue here is the United Nations partition plan of 1947. That was to be decided to be a Jewish, uh, be a Jewish state. The yellow and the purple was to be the Arab state. Now, it was never going to be a Palestinian state. We should just make that clear. It was going to be an Arab state. Now, this is part of the states that down the bottom, it would be likely to be given to, God, to Egypt, and the rest would be part of the greater Transjordan area. Now, what happened in the war in 1948, the War of Independence, is a number of these areas. Now, this is the purple. Israel increased the size of its territory in 1948 so albeit that it was given very i mean it's a very interesting uh, map we can see there like little narrow channels where the arab and jewish um, states would uh, cross and intersect up by nazareth in the north and over here just south of tel aviv so these are things that um, were by the end of the war israel had created a certain level of contiguity through all this area that is now in the blue and the, uh, the blue and the purple. And that was until 1967, when uh, the what is now the yellow parts, the yellow parts being over here, this is called the West Bank, and this is Gaza. So these parts were captured by Israel in 1967, and these are the areas that we are going to be talking about. Okay, so we can uh, now move on to where the, the settlements and the like. So in, in 1947, even though that these areas, let me just get my little pencil back. Um, okay, so there are certain areas that I'll be that these were purple areas and theoretically that means that they were um, Arab. There was a significant number amount of Jewish settlement in Israel uh, in places that were not given over to Israel in 1947. Most notably, for our point, is an area over here. So this area over here, so you see Bethlehem, Bethlehem. So just south of Bethlehem was a little area called the Gush Etzion Block. Gush Etzion Block consisted of um, a, a place called Kvar Etzion, Masa'ot Yitzchak, a few little kibbutzim, 
And those places were not part of the Jewish part that was denied, uh, was donated by, was, which was given by the United Nations. In 1947, you know, when, once the partition happened and the war started getting going, the people of Pride, Sion and beyond, they remained and the, they fought all the way till the end. Kratzion and Gushetzion eventually falling on the on on uh, the day before Yom Ha'atzmaut, the, the whole thing fell. And in Yom Ha'atzmaut, so albeit that we celebrate, it was the fall of Kratzion. Now Kratzion is uh, there were a number of very notable stories that happened through that uh, through that battle. First and foremost is there was an absolute massacre for the people. Uh, in Kratzion, there were a number of survivors um, who got out, a number of survivors who were in captivity for about a year. But most notably, there was a famous story of what we call the Lamad Hay, the 35. So this is a story that took place that when Kratzion was under siege around this time, and 35 crack troops left from behind Bet Shemesh and came up the, from the southern end. So usually, so Bet Shemesh is around, let's say around here. And ordinarily the road would be this way. But these, the 35, they took a road back here to try and break the siege. What landed up happening is along the way, they found an Arab shepherd and they captured a young boy and they captured him and they didn't know what to do with him. On the one hand, he was a completely innocent Arab, but he, but he had spotted them. So they decided they weren't gonna kill him. They couldn't kill an innocent shepherd. So they decided they were going, they asked him, please, can you um, um, make a, you know, basically promise us you won't tell, tell them that we're coming. Anyway, he went, the shepherd went and he told them and the 35 who set up to go rescue and, and save the people in Kratzion were ambushed and massacred completely. It is a famous story. There is a kibbutz named after them called Nativ Alamad Hay, which is called the, the Path of the 35. So that happened on Erev, uh, Erev Yom Ha'atzmaut. So get back to my little map here. Okay. So partition, independence, Gush Yitzion is an area that gets, uh, uh, gets, um, gets, uh, gets destroyed. So even though we've won a lot more land than we had been given by the United Nations, there's certain areas that we never... That we never conquer, that we never got, and we lose. In fact, there's there is uh, an area. So the yeshiva I went to, which is commonly known as the Gush. So the Gush is an area. It's the Gush Etzion. It's a whole area. Gush means like a, a mass or a group. So um, so Gush Etzion, there was a an uh, an oak tree. The word oak is uh, an alon, and it was a very very large oak tree, and you could see it from the outskirts of Jerusalem. And when the people from that survived, Kratzion would look out south towards the Gush that had been taken, they could see this tree. So when eventually the, they, they returned, they named the settlement built next to the tree Alon Shvut, which means return to the oak tree. And that's where my yeshiva was in a, in a little settlement called Alon Shvut, return to the oak tree. So what happens? In 1967, all of a sudden, um, th this enormous land mass has just you know, come back into our hands. Not only do we have Yerushalayim, we have the entire Yerushalayim, the Iratika, the old city, the Temple Mount, the holiest part for Judaism, but we have Hebron that has come back into Jewish hands. And the whole story of the Tanakh, if you open up the Tanakh, the vast majority of the stories of 
of Shoftim, or the book of Judges, and Shmuel, the book of Samuel, and Kings, most of it happens in, you know, what we now call the West Bank, Judah and Samaria. So these areas are where the whole story pretty much took place. And now all of a sudden we've got this, this land in our hands. But very little happened as far. So there was a movement called Tnua uh, Laman Eretz Israel. So I've got it over here. So the movement for the uh, with the order for the greater land of Israel, or the great Israel, that they got together. And this is a bunch of not necessarily religious, some secular academics, some poets and uh, and uh, and um, you see labor Zionists, revisionists, everyone. We felt that you know after we've captured Gaza, the Sana, the whole Sana Desert, West Bank, Golan Heights, and everything. This was something that was was uh, we, that we had to. There was a certain mystical element that God had returned us to these lands, and we needed to to start inhabiting them. So the first places they went were places that had already been inhabited. So number one was Gush Etzion, the Gush Etzion block. So this was led by a guy named Hanan Porat. Hanan Porat will become a minister of the Knesset, and we're going to see him a few times come. Just to show you a picture, uh, this doesn't work so well when I'm doing it. So Hanan, this is Hanan Porat over here on the right with his hands in the air. So this is Hanan Porat. And Hanan Porat was a very well-known, when, even when I was in Yeshiva, he was a very well-known um, personality. Big, very big uh, scholar, written and, and, and spoken. Lots of his stuff's available online. And he led people to go re-establish Kfar Etzion. Kfar Etzion still exists today. Is actually the whole Gush Etzion region has grown enormously. So if you're familiar with this, the township, the, the settlement of Efrat, uh, Kfar Daniel, Elazar, Alon uh, Shvut, uh, Bat Ein, uh, Kfar Etzion, these are all places that are still very much, um, very, uh, very much alive and kicking. And, and that was established in 1967, immediately after the war, permission was given to re-establish places that were conquered. There's no settlement movement. We are not going all over, you know, everywhere. We're going to places where there's no there's no inhabitants of that land, and we're going to set up. So number one was the Gush Etzion. The other place, and this became a little bit more controversial, was in Hebron. So, this is, so Hebron, a little bit of the history of Hebron. So in in 19, Hebron was, is the second holiest site to the Jewish people. It's where Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, uh, Sarah, Rachel, and Leah are all buried, and therefore it's always been the second holiest site. The Jews had always had a presence in Hebron, and a very notable yeshiva from uh, from Europe relocated to Hebron. It's the yeshiva that was called Slobodka, and when Slobodka uh, moved to Hebron, I think it's Tiferet Yisrael. I think that's the name of the yeshiva. I stand corrected to that. But um, when Slobodka moved to Hebron, it became the Hebron yeshiva. And it was really one of the in Europe was one of the top yeshivot, and Hebron was it was uh, became you know reestablished as this great yeshiva. In 1929, now you can go in different versions. One one there was an Arab revolt against the British, but an Arab revolt against the Jews as well. And there was an absolute massacre in Hebron, causing not only the closure of the yeshiva but the eradication of a Jewish presence in Hebron. So from 1929 until 1967, there was no Jewish presence in Hebron whatsoever. So now in 1967, there's a, a desire to go back. Now, so how did this happen? So this was through a certain level of subterfuge. So two Jewish men walk into a hotel, the Palestine Park Hotel in Hebron, 
and pre pretend that they are Swiss tourists and they want to rent the entire hotel for the period of Pesach. So they're Jewish and they could go in. We, we Last week we saw um, about Rav, um, Rav Gorin, how he sort of conquered Hebron himself because he was going ahead of the army, not aware of that. So they went into the Park Hotel and to set up shot for Pesach and they never left, the ultimate bad guest. And so they stay on and stay on and stay on. Eventually, the Israeli government agrees to give them an, a military base on the uh, what would be the northern end, uh, northeast of Hebron, and that becomes a settlement called Kiryat Arba. So Kiryat Arba is still Kiryat Arba. If you open up the if you open up the Chumash and Parshat Sarah, when it goes talks about Abraham burying pine and burial plot for Sarah, so. The, the city of Hebron is called Kiryat Arba. It's the the Kiryat, the the um, Kiryat, the, the the village, the 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 city of the four. And so it's of the so it says of the four different couples that were buried, or four giants that whatever the case might be. But there is a settlement called Kiryat Arba, which still exists today. All these settlements still exist today, and Kiryat Arba is established. So this is all post 1967. So there's this euphoria within the Jewish within the Israeli world that these these lands, these holy lands. Have come to um, have come back into the hands of the Jewish community into Israel. That now we can go and we can travel and move through the land of Israel. But the reality is, is it's not so simple because um, they're just going to be walking through Arab villages. Now, anyone who has spent time who spent time in Israel through the 70s and 80s will know that you could go into Gaza in the 1970s and 80s. People would go for lunch in Gaza. People would go in the West Bank. They would go, people, Israelis could just walk through. There wasn't that much of a problem. So there was no Israeli settlement because there was the hope that in 1967, the Israeli government took position that even though there was absolute animosity from the Arab nations who refused, there the, were the three great no's, no recognition, no negotiation, and no peace, and so, never. So between 1967 and 1974, very little happened by way of Israeli Jewish settlement in what were at that time called the occupied territories. Now, why were they called occupied territories? So this is a point which is consistently you're always hearing the news that when Israel does something, it is against international law. You know, you know the occupation of the West Bank, the occupation of this, all against international law. So Israel claims it's not against international law because, like most things in law, it really depends on how you define things. So occupation is that I come into your house and I live in your house and control your house, and really the house belongs to you. So I'm an occupier. So Israel claim, well, who's claiming that we the occupiers? They're Palestinians, but we never took it from the Palestinians. The West Bank was taken by the, from the Jordanians. Gaza was taken from the Egyptians. There was never there was never a Palestinian state. So who are we going to return it to? So you say, well, you're going to return it to the Palestinians, but but they were never in charge of it. So that's where the Israeli perspective comes. There was never occupation, but Israel never annexed any part of the West Bank and Gaza. Where they did annex is they annexed uh, the Golan Heights. And they annexed East Jerusalem. So East Jerusalem now, now annex means you absolutely extend your boundaries and you have to grant citizenship to people who live there. So East Jerusalem Arabs were given an Israeli status, at least for most part. There's certain areas, I think, where they can't vote in their national elections, if I'm not mistaken. I can stand correct on that. But East Jerusalem Arabs have all the benefits of Israelis because they are, even though they are, they're the only... Arabs that are they're the only Palestinians post six post 48 that were given citizenship because Israel annexed um, the East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights was annexed because of the strategic necessity of it 
there was not a huge population. Everyone that was there either left or it was in the Druzim and the, and the Druze community, you know, um, are always um, uh, hold allegiance to the nation that they're in. So the many Druze that serve in the Israeli army and the like. But the West Bank and Gaza was never annexed for a number of reasons. Um, one of the main reasons was never annexed is because of the, uh, you annex the West Bank. And this is a problem until today. Why doesn't Israel annex it? Because if you annex it, you've got to give the people your citizenship. You give, you give all the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza citizenship. So there are currently, if I'm not mistaken, 7 million Jews in Israel. And I think 1.5 to 2 million Arabs. Now, there are 1.5 to 2 million Arabs in the West Bank and another 2 plus million Arabs in, the, in, the, in Gaza. So if you add that all together, you're going to find that the Jewish and Arab population of Israel and, let's say, the territories put together means that if it's one man, one vote, it's not going to be very long, especially considering that the Arab birth rate is much higher than the Jewish birth rate. It won't be long before Israel would cease to become a democratically Jewish country. So it's either going to have to give up its Jewishness or give up its democracy. So that is the second, that is the democratic reason why Israel never gave up. Okay, comes the Yom Kippur War in 1974. And this is where everything shifts. That all of a sudden, you know, we, 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 we first we thought we were indestructible from 1967. You know, we had won such a miraculous war in such a short amount of time. We felt indestructible. But all of a sudden, not only did we feel uh, very, very vulnerable, but what happened is many within the religious community started seeing this as a sign that God has given us this unbelievable gift of, of the greater Israel, the West Bank, the lands of the Tanakh. And what, how did we, uh, and what did we do? We did absolutely nothing. We pretended we didn't have them. There was no settlement whatsoever. And they took it as a sign that we have to start settling the West Bank. We have to start settling um, Gaza. So where, where did this all begin? So we have now um, Gushimunim with a goal to, set, to settle the West Bank, Gaza, the Golan Heights. Golan Heights, because it was annexed, never really got, and even now, I remember when I was in Yeshiva in my early days, there was a movement called, called Ha'ami Magolan. It was like a big banner. It says, the nation with the Golan. Because at the time, there was thought that maybe Israel would, would, would negotiate with Syria and give up the Golan Heights, you know, for peace. And so there's a big movement came, Ha'ami Magolan, the land, the, the nation with the Golan, and we have to keep the Golan. I haven't heard that. No one's been talking about that for the last 20 years. But West Bank and Gaza was this big desire to um to to settle that now when did this how did this all begin so i'm going to share, share with you a few videos here which you'll find or I, I find them quite fascinating for a number of reasons no that's not the one i want to share i want to share sorry share that one okay so the first one is this one this is one of the first things that happened in israel in in the west bank was a wedding the wedding took place in a place called Sebastia. Sebastia is the, the ruins of an ancient palace. And like it is where, if you've ever heard of Ju Judah and, the, and Samaria. Samaria is, the, I suppose, the Anglicized name. The Hebrew name is Shomron. The, the Roman name is Sebastia. And there was a huge wedding that took place. And you will see some of the pictures. Now, this, uh, this is a... Okay, so this is important to me. So why why is this of uh, such crucial importance to me? 
is that this bride is my father-in-law's sister, and this is Tamar's grandmother. They, this was um, Tamar's grand, grand, Tamar's aunt was the one who got married. We're going to see her in the video shortly. And this is going to be one of the foundational moments within the settler movement that they had this massive wedding on Tuba Av. Tuba Av is the festival of, uh, of love, I suppose you could say, in Judaism. It's, it's this Valentine's Day, for lack of a better term, in Judaism. And there's this massive wedding that is going to take place, and it is with, there will be a notable number of dignities. Wedding. <laughs> מיכל חן מרמת גן ואברהם שבות מפרדס חנה הם החתן והכלה. הייתה פה איזה משטח בטון קטן. לכמה שעות וכן הלאה עד כאן כי אני מכיר אתכם כפנים אחר כך תרדו ממש בעניין. So we can see, see over there you just see the, the wedding the people are there so that, that in, the, in the color picture that was tomorrow's um, aunt and uncle. The aunt and uncle-in-law, I suppose you could say, and, and tomorrow's grandparents. And you can see even, you see my father-in-law in the pictures in the video as well. But who you don't see in there are ministers in the government or people who will become ministers in the government, most notably Ariel Sharon. So you will see a, a picture of him, uh, if we go back to our source sheet, that so much of this happens. You see, yeah, so the, he has Ariel Sharon at the establishment of one of the kibbutzim. But the reality is that this whole movement was a blessing that was given in the name of Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk. So Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, so if you've heard of Rav Kuk, Rav Kuk was the first uh, chief rabbi of Palestine. You know, it would be said, the, uh, the Palestinian mandate. And Rav Kuk, Rav Avram Yitzhak Kohen Kuk, he was the, he started his yeshiva called Mir Kazarav. And in... He was the spiritual, let's say, the spiritual, I wouldn't say founder, but he was the spirit behind B'nai Akiva and the spirit behind religious Zionism. His son, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, took over from him. Rav Tzvi Yehuda, on the eve of the, of the, um, of the Six-Day War, talked about the fact that we're sitting here, but we don't have Jerusalem, and we don't have Hebron, and we don't have all the important places in Judaism, and he bemoaned it. And it became that overnight when we won the West Bank, and now all of a sudden it was like, this is ridiculous. We, we need to start setting. So Rav Tzvi would have cooked, and he had four, at least four, very notable individuals. So Hanan Porat, we've already mentioned. Let me just give my little pencil again. Hanan Porat, we've already mentioned. Rav Yor Ben Nuna, Rav Yor Ben Nuna and Hanan Porat were both paratroopers in the unit that landed up conquering Jerusalem in the Six-Day War. Rav Yor Benun is probably the world's expert on the Tanakh at this point in time. He was one of the people that I had the privilege to learn by. He's a, he's a, he must be in his uh, early 70s at the moment, maybe even a bit older, probably his uh, mid late 70s. But Rav Yor Benun. Rav Moshe Levinger, Rav Moshe Levinger is going to be the uh, man who went into the Park Hotel in Hebron. Menachem Froman, who we'll see a little bit shortly, these gentlemen... They are the ones who became the heart and soul of the settler movement. So they go in the first kibbutz. So it says they go and they start setting. They try to have this wedding in Sebastian, which they have, and they try to settle it. Eventually, like what happened in Hebron, they, um, they, um, oh, sorry, I don't know what happened there. Like what happened in Hebron, if you just 
stay put and dig in. So what will happen? Eventually, Israel will give you permission. And that's what happens. They eventually, they are given permission to settle in an army base called Kedum or Kedumim. Kedumim is one of the oldest settlements in the area. It is where my wife's uh, grandparents are both buried. It is where her aunt and uncle still live. It is right in the heart of, you know, in the heart, we will see a little bit picture a bit later of it, but really in the heart of Judean Samaria. And that becomes the model is that the Israeli government, due to a lot of political machinations that happen, so every politician at some point or another has, you know, every politician, every prime minister, every leader, at some point or another has given for some reason and um, permission to, for settlements to be built. But those settle, but they can often, so Shimon Peres gave permission for settlements to be built, Yitzchak Rabin gave settlements, Menachem Begin, Aliyah Sharon, everyone at some point or another was very much behind the settlement movement and helping them to get. This is a picture of Rav Yol Ben Nun. It's the same. Yeah. Okay, let me just get a little bit further. So this is Moshe Levinger. This man on the left here, Moshe Levinger is the one who... Um, so Moshe Levinger is the one who went into the Park Hotel. This is Hanan Porat. This is the wedding in Sebastia. That is what this is a picture of. Okay. Okay. So, mm -mm. Right. so we're going down. This is Ratzvi Hulukuk. This is Rachaim Drukman. Rachaim Drukman also up until is still one of the leaders in the religious Zionist community. So let's let's go to a little bit of the uh, logic behind Gush Emunim. It wasn't just a a, a pipe dream, but it's based on the religious ideology which viewed the whole land of Israel, described in biblical texts as having been promised to the Jewish people. Throughout the Torah text, you read the fact that you know, all the land that you can see, there's a promise made to Abraham that this is the land I've given to you, and I've given it to your children to inherit it. So this has been promised. And so when we when these lands were liberated, again, they weren't conquered in 1968. They were liberated. It was always our land. So it wasn't that we were getting something that you conquer land that's not yours. We weren't conquering it. This is our land. We're just getting it back. So how can you ever relinquish voluntarily this land to Arab rule or to any non-Jewish rule? It doesn't matter. Even if the Israeli government wants to come and say, we want to give away land for peace. Who are you, Israeli? How can you, if God gave it to us, how can you as a government go and give it away? And feel for the Israeli government demonstrating weakness, following disasters, against Yom Kippur war, the, these religious Zionists particularly. Now, Gush Emunim were religious Zionists. There might have been some just Zionists without the religion, but the bulk of Gush Emunim were religious Zionists that saw the hand of God in the process. So the Gush Emunim said as his objective creation of a political movement which would ensure that none of the land controlled by Israel would ever be relinquished. So what they say, possession is nine-tenths of the law. If we are settled, then we will not be removed. Now, that is something that works very well in principle. In practice, hasn't always been the case. So first and foremost is when Israel created a peace treaty with Egypt to give back the Sinai. This is between uh, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat in the early 80s. Well, late 70s, early 80s, there was a very well-known settlement down in a place called Yamit on the Red Sea coast that had to be dismantled. It, it caused terrible amounts of trauma. Many of those people who, who left and were kicked out of Yamit moved to another place called Gush Katif. 
Gush Katif were Israeli settlements, and there were a number of settlements that were built in the Gaza region, only to be uprooted again by Ariel Sharon in 2005. But the logic was the more we are there, the less the chance that people can give away. And that is what is happening. And if so, everyone talks about the settlements being an obstacle to peace, and we will see that it's you know a settlement. When you talk of settlements, I don't know if anyone's been to a settlement, but a settlement isn't a couple of people living in tents on in, in caravans on a hilltop. Settlements are cities. They are real cities. They are enormous, and, they, and many of them are magnificent. They really are beautiful areas. You go through the beautiful suburbs, manicured lawns. It's, they're incredible places. But um, but when you've got hundreds of thousands, in, in Gush Katif, you had a few thousand. In Yamit, you had a few thousand. In the West Bank, you have, you have we're going to see close to, close to half a million Jews living in the West Bank in 10, in about 50 to 100 different settlements. It becomes very difficult. And that's the idea. So, so carrying on. Right. So, so even though Gushimuni never became a formal movement, so it was never, it was, it was, it was a movement in the sense of, it was, it was a, a spirit of the time, like the hippies. The hippies weren't a movement. But but there were a movement, and same with Gushemuni. So so what were the the logics and the themes? So what are the so number one is they saw the failure of the Zionist project, and this is something that we struggle with already again today. Think of how Zionism started. So Zionism came and said we're going to set up um, we're going to set up shop in in the land of Israel. We're going to go to all over, and we're just going to set up a shop. We're going to put up a plant, a stake in the land. We're going to buy land, whatever it is, and we're going to just build and build and build and do this, create this whole country around, and people are going to oppose it, and we're going to have to defend ourselves and what we're going to do. And, this is, and then what happened when we established the state of Israel? Then all of a sudden, this, this Zionist, this uh, pioneering spirit stopped. That there was no longer this idea of being a pioneer. And the religious Zionists said that we will be the pioneers. We're just carrying on the Zionist vision. Why should we stop now? That's number one. Number two, and this become the key, is that religious law is binding. With religious law binding, it means that you can't you, you can't just give up land. We are bound to the Torah. So we, what we don't always appreciate, it was interesting, I had a conversation with a, a Muslim leader today, and I, I he didn't understand or appreciate the fact that the state of Israel does not conduct itself according to the law of Torah. He felt that, you know, that almost that Israel bombing Gaza, that was his point of view, that, that we thought that that is what the Torah wants us to do. And that Israel believes that they are doing what the Torah wants them to do. And I said, Israel is not a religious country. It's a completely secular country. And it's decisions it's made are based on what its political objectives are, you know, for whether it be for safety, security, whatever the case might be. But it's not because it's what the Torah thinks. And that's what these religious honest is that, this land belongs to us. Who are you as leaders of a country? So you say it's a de de democratic country. So we don't care about democracy. Judaism has never been a democratic uh, country in the, in the strictest sense of the word. Israel is a, is a, should be a theocracy. It should be run by Torah. You know, Lahavdil is like completely different, but what happens in Iran? So you've got the mullahs who are running things in Israel. Israel should be run according to Torah law. And so we can't give up the land. This will become where the problem comes a little bit later with regards to so what happens when Israel does want to give up land, when the state of Israel. And the, the final thing that really comes in this concept of peace and security. And so long as we have Jewish presence there, the, the security of the state of Israel, the people of Israel is far greater. 
So this was the idea that, and, and, and so what would happen consistently is Israelis, and this year I've got another little video that I'll share with you just to show you the kind of spirit that was happening in uh, Gush Emunim. So this is to show you the kind of spirit of what was happening on the uh, on settlements, how they, how they started settlements. What is the purpose of this groups being here? We, we intend to go back home. The land is waiting for us for 2,000 years. It's about time to, to get into it. And what do you and call to home? settle. What do you call home? Jericho. Do you have permission from the government to settle in Jericho? Permission from the government? I don't think that a Jew needs permission to live in Jericho from anyone. Because it's... Uh, So just to show that, that there was the mindset that we are going to go and what would happen, and you still hear this every now and again, is an outpost. So what is an outpost is it would be a group of Jews, usually youngsters, that will just go with tents and, and just literally overnight just set up a camp in the middle of a hilltop somewhere. And then the soldiers, the Israeli soldiers will come and tell us, you can't live here, you've got to move. And they'll be forcibly evicted. And then the next night they'll be there again. And the same thing will happen. And it happens time and time again until some point in time Israeli government to say, right, you can't live here, you can go live there. And there'll be things, and, and some of it's legal, you know, from an Israeli a legal framework, it is legal. Some is illegal, but this is where a lot of the tension cuts. But if you look at what happens, and this is where the shift is going to come, is that the ideals of Gush Emonim were settling the land. The problem with settling the land is there were people living there already. And not all over the land, but there were there were a lot of Arabs living in the West Bank and in Gaza. So what do you do with them? So things start shifting now because the, the, the Palestinians don't want Jews moving into their land. And the Jews want to move in. And what's that going to do to the nature of the relationship between the Jews and the Palestinians trying to you know, share this land or to try to fight for this land? And what happens on both sides is this is where extremism comes in. Is this from a Jewish point of view? How does a Jew relate to a, to a, to a non-Jew in the land of Israel? Do I walk up to him and say, listen, I don't care how long your ancestors, your ancestors have been here for a thousand years, two and a half, three thousand years ago, Hashem gave this to Avram Avinu, so get out of my land or I will forcibly evict you. Um, or, or no, listen, let's make a deal, let's work it out together and there should be peace and harmony and we should share the land it's, you know, you here, I'm here, and the like. And, and what happens is the tension that builds between the settlers and the Arabs is something which goes on till today. And within the Gush Emunim movement, you have sort of two groups that, that land up having. You come people, because not everyone right-wing politically hates Arabs. And, and I don't think there's appreciated as much, is that we often think that, well, if you're, pro, if you're a settler and you're a Zionist and you're right-wing, so therefore you hate Arabs. 
that's really not. So a perfect example, Rabbi Ruskin. Rabbi Ruskin is, is very right-wing. He's very pro-settlement. He, 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 he's been living in the, in the West Bank for his entire, he's been in Israel for 40 plus years. And he's been living in the West Bank and, and is definitely and consistently tries to reach out and have positive relationships with the, with the, with the Arab population. He doesn't hate it, but others not case. And there's a lot of hatred. And, and this is where we have the challenges because in, in, in the West Bank, currently what happens is you have two systems of law. You have, um, you have Israelis that are, that are ruled by Israeli civil law, i.e. the police force, and you have Palestinians who are run by Israeli martial law. So if an Israeli and a Palestinian would say have a, have a fist fight, the soldier can't touch the Israeli and the, and the police officer can't touch the Palestinian. So it's a very awkward situation. I mean, when you when you go there and you see when I, you know, these sort of things go on, it becomes as if because that is if there's a if there's a soldier standing there and there's raiders throwing rocks at Palestinians, they can't do anything. If the Palestinians throw rocks at Israelis, they can do something because they're soldiers. And vice versa, if there's a is a policeman standing there and he sees Palestinians throwing rocks, he can't do anything. If he's Israeli throwing rocks, he can. So it's a very, very bizarre setup. Where does this come to the forefront? And we're going to see a couple of interesting personalities that come, but perhaps one of the most notable events that took place was an event that took place in the 90s called, uh, of Baruch Goldstein, 1994. So who is Baruch Goldstein? So initially members of Gush Etion and wider settlement did not wish to harm Palestinians in the territories, but as Gush Etion supporters pushed for the Judaization of occupied territories, the language, and the language became more radical. Hushem and activists justified their arguments of taking law into their own hands through messianic culture. If the stand turns against redemption, one must choose redemption over the state. So our belief of what Hashem wants trumps what the government is saying. So February 25th, 1994, Baruch Goldstein, if I'm not mistaken, was a doctor, entered into the Muslim prayer hall in Hebron, in the Maratha Machpelah, the cave of the, of the Machpelah, killing 29 worshippers, men, women, and children, including Mary, eventually was overwhelmed and killed. Now, this, this, is, this was a tragedy. It was an absolute tragedy. Bhagavad just literally walked into the mosque with her M16 and just fired on 29 worshippers. So why did he do it? So the, the claim was that there was threats to the Jewish community by the local Muslim community that, this, that the old soldiers weren't um, taking seriously. And so he took matters into his, home, in, into his own hands to try preempt um, the attack on the Jewish community. And he was, um, and, and that's what he did. Now, if I were to, you, you hear a story like that of, of, of a Jewish man going, a religious Jewish man going with an M16 and killing 29 worshippers. What's the response from the Jewish community? So this is where, and, and I suppose when, when you talk about the battle for the soul of Israel, this is where it comes in. At Goldstein's funeral, many religious fundamentalist Jews paid great tribute to Goldstein's actions, even extolling that he did not kill enough Arabs in the massacre. Although Gushim Munim was not directly involved in the incident, the movement did not condemn Goldstein's act. Gushimunim spiritual leaders openly praised the criminal act, hailing Goldstein as a saint who carried out the Lord's, the Lord's work. Goldstein act was a symptom of the radicalization process and the cultural violence that was occurred due to the spell of Gush's 
messianic and fundamentalist ideology. So this idea that Ekush Emonim was, um, was now promoting this sort of behavior was something and, 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 and accepting the radicalization of the, um, of the movement was something that became very, very problematic. So I'm just going to share with you now a, a fascinating correspondence. Give me two six. Uh, let's see if I can get to that. Okay. And we won't go through all of this, but at least. So, this is a correspondence between Rav uh, Aaron Lichtenstein, who was my Rosh Hashiva, and a number of other Israeli rabbis in 1994. So, it's just, I mean, we're just going to read through the letters, correspondence. So, this is written by Rav Lichtenstein. To my dear colleague, greetings, Ashram Baracha. We all recognize the great sensitivity that exists within the network of Yeshivat Hezde. Yeshivat Hezde are the religious Zionist Yeshivas. And our mutual cooperation in towards safeguard and absolute independence of each Yeshiva in regard to its established educational policy. Meaning that each, each Yeshiva has got to be independent. I can't tell you how to run your place. You can't like each school. And we are quite committed to the appropriate and established tradition of a mutual non-interference in the area. Nonetheless, during these troubled times, I feel compelled to temporarily abandon this tradition, not out of a desire to express my opinion, but simply because it is impossible from a personal and moral stance to remain silent. So Rav Lichtenstein, who was never one to um, give his opinion unasked, is doing exactly that now. Therefore, I must vigorously protest about what transpired last night before all of Israel and the entire world. Okay, this is, what is last night? This is the funeral of Baruch Goldstein. A person, whatever his previous merits may have been, departed this world while engaged in an act of awful and terrible slaughter. Tevach ayom venora, a slaughter that was, was shocking and terrifying. And thereby, beyond the crime itself, desecrated the name of heaven. Full man murdered worshippers in cold blood. This great name of trampled upon the honor of Torah and Mitzvot, soiled and sullied the image of Knesset of the community of Israel, and endangered the future of Jewish settlements in Yehuda Shimon and Gaza. This man won praise and honor in the yeshiva of his hometown in Kiryat Arba and was eulogized Kalacha with full ceremonial honor by the Rosh Yeshiva. Rosh yeshiva I guess his Rosh Yeshiva. Woe to the ears that hear that. But if it has been decreed that we must hear it, at least there should be a clear protest which expresses not just disassociation, but also disgust, shock. We must do so not to protect our public image, but to preserve our self-image. So incredibly strong words. Rav Lichtenstein was not one to mince his words and he was not one to give rebuke, but he says that how can we, as a religious community, at one of our own went and murdered 29 worshippers and he was given a full burial that at his funeral, people were talking about he's such a tzaddik and he was such a great man and he did such work of Hashem. He says, this, how do we, this is not about public image. He says, I'm not concerned about that. What would the non-Jews world say? They see us praising Baruch Goldstein. He says, how, with our own ethics intact, how can we praise Baruch Goldstein for what he did? So that's one big Rosh Hashiva of the religious Zionist Yeshiva. Rav Yobin Nun, who we saw, was one of the founders of Gushim Minim Yeshiva. He's a product of this Yeshiva. Rav Yehuda Amitav is going to be a member of the parliament. We're going to see so many of the settler movement come out of Yeshiva Haritzion, out of Rav Lichtenstein's Yeshiva. And he's saying, you, how do you praise someone like Baruch Goldstein? But listen to the response that Rav Lichtenstein gets from those eulogizers. 
Number one, he says, Dear Rabbi Lichtenstein, Shalom. Let me know that we are against terrorism of any kind, Arab terrorism against Jews, and also Jewish terrorism against Arabs. But the protests made by the rabbi in his letter do not sit well with us in the spirit of take the beam from between your eyes, which is something you might be familiar with. Um, it's also it's a New Testament statement. It says basically, pot calling the kettle black. As is well known, your honor supports the political process and all that accompanies it. Rav Luchensi, this is 1994. What happened in 1994? The peace process, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat. Where was Rav Luchensi? Rav Luchensi supported land for peace. Gushu Munim originally was against land for peace. So it comes Rav Luchensi, he supports it. So now we've got Rav Shmuel, uh, Avram, Kurwell, Shmuel Haber, Rosh Hashiva, Koronai Shimon, which he should have how dare you come and tell us you are supporting the priest process? It says, um, even if only de facto the legitimization of the entire world of, of which of the arch terrorists who spilled the blood of Jews and not others, that's Yasser Arafat. Like what? And the terrorist ideology of this is by causing terrible and awful disgrace on Hashem, God's name, Chilu Hashem, indescribable damage to Jewish people. Telling that the, you, you are supporting something involved with Yasser Arafat. Well, is clear to us that your honor's intentional sake of heaven, his, his words in this matter are not to be heard. I don't care, say the Rosh Hashiva, I don't care what um, you say, you know, because Yasser Arafat, I don't care what he says, I don't care about anything. Basically, mind your own business, Rav Lichtenstein. Then comes a stronger letter. This is from Rav Dov Lior. Rav Dov Lior, till this very day, a very controversial character in the religious Zionist world. And he writes as follows, we received the facts in our office and though it wasn't explicitly addressed to me as my name did not appear, it was none as clear to whom it was directed. And because of covered Torah, I find a proper to relate and respond out of respect. Indeed, I eulogize the late Baruch Goldstein. Oh, sorry. Apologies. Just, yes. I eulogize the late Baruch Goldstein. May Hashem avenge his blood. Hashem. So Hashem Yikum Dama. So that, that is usually said. So when you talk about Jews that were killed in the Shoah, so Hashem should avenge their blood. It's usually from victims. So look at he's talking about Goldstein who murdered 29 people. Yes, he was murdered as well, but the, who was lynched by the non-Jews in the cave of the Machpelah? Yes, he was lynched after killing 29 Palestinians. A Jew is killed because a Jew must be certainly be called Kadosh. A holy martyr is referred to Kiddushah Shoah. He's comparing to like the holy martyrs of the Holocaust. Without investigating their previous conduct, if someone's killed because they're a Jew, it doesn't matter why they were killed. We got to we got to uh, respect them. How much more so in this case? For we knew intimately as God-fearing, compassionate as one who loved human and saved life. He was a wonderful man. He was a good man. How dare you? Even if someone holds the opinion that his final act was improper, he says, even if you want to suggest that what he did was improper, what did, he killed twenty-nine people, and and how's Rav Dov says? Even if you want to suggest that maybe it was important. What do you mean if you want to? But you hear the idea that when you have this ideology, that is this land is ours and everyone who is here is unwelcome. So everyone becomes the enemy. Rav Luchtenstein, which is this land is ours, but it can also be yours. So you see within the religious Zionist world, there's this huge, but I remember once in, when, I, when I was in a Purim party, this is probably around 2000, 2001, one of these kids from the, the more right-wing yeshiva, 
had a bit much to drink and he came to the yeshiva and tried to physically assault Rav Lichtenstein. Why? Because Rav Lichtenstein was this left-wing traitor who wanted to give up land. And that is traitorous. And this, till this very day, you'll see that Jewish terrorists, if you go look for Jews, religious, if you go see people who are in the West Bank terrorizing Palestinians, attacking Palestinians, burning down their, their orchards and the like, they have kipot, they have payot, because they are buying into this ideology. So, and until this very day, you have this enormous, like Gush Emunim have started this, you know, they started this movement, which was built out of this love for Israel and this love for the land of Israel and this deep desire to settle the land of Israel. But over time, it has manifested into an ideology that has a political, where it's now, has created that the that the Palestinians and the Arabs are enemies. Now it, it could be, I'm not sure which is if it's a reaction or it is the intent. I mean, a reaction to Arab hatred of Jews, called Jewish hatred to Ape, hatred towards Arabs, and vice versa. I'm not sure that which way it went. But one or another is got the situation to the point now where Jews are um, Jews are at terrible, um, you know, the, the hatred within the Palestinian world for the um, so give me two secs. I just want to one more video. So, so Gushu Munim doesn't exist anymore, but the settler movement does. So I'm going to just share with you one last screen to share. And this is a list of settlements in the West Bank. It's 2018. So just to give a picture of some of these, you might be familiar with some not. I just got this on Wikipedia. Okay, so some of them are, most of them are religious, although not all of them are. But uh, Ariel is up is uh, north of Jerusalem. It's one of the bigger ones. Um, Beit El, Beitar, um, Efrat. People will be familiar. So Efrat has over ten thousand inhabitants. If you get some um, down below here, Givat Ev, which is on the southern, uh, the northern tip of Jerusalem, is close to eighteen thousand. But look at the total at the bottom. So first you see how many villages there are. Kudumim, that was the original one, close to 5,000. You go all the way down. How many Jews currently living in the West Bank and the quote-unquote occupied territories? Look at all these settlements. Close to half a million Jews. 430,000. This is in 2018, and it consistently growing. It is an enormous, um, enormous thing. Um, so looking at Gushumunim, it is a movement that has really brought a spark to Israel because for those of us who have gone, you can really travel and see biblical Israel, something that's much harder to see if you don't go into the West Bank. But that being said, it has created a, a political nightmare, one that is uh, very difficult to get out of and one that is, um, I don't believe it's an obstacle to peace, but it's definitely not helping peace, that's for certain. And uh, people are incredibly passionate about it. Um, we have a lot of the family that still live there. I lived in Efrat for a number of years. Now with uh, with uh, even the current uh, best situation of uh, land for peace would mean that the land, the West Bank would have to be carved up in such a way that like the Gush on block that we mentioned earlier would still be retained part of Israel and other, there'll be land swaps and the like. But what is difficult today is that there is a lot of people that have left the settler movement because they couldn't handle the rhetoric and anti-Arab. So I just want to share one last video. And this is, uh, so I mentioned Rav Menachem Froman was one of the settlers. So Rav Yor Ben Nun 
he mentioned was the commander from um, from San Khanim, from the paratroopers. So he was, um, he's left, he left, um, uh, he, he left Gushamunin because of his rhetoric. He has another one of a man named Rabbi Menachem Fromer. I'm just show you a few, a few minutes of this and then we'll... You have to love your neighbor. And say the Lord. And the Palestines are my neighbors. So the love to the Palestines is the essence of my religion. Jew who lives in the literal fulfillment of the commandment to wait for the Messiah's arrival with keen anticipation every day. And that's how Menachem Froman has always lived his life, as a settler activist and then as an interfaith activist. <laughs> أفكار أفكار إيش إنها الأرض هذه مش بس تابعة لليهود إنها مقدسة بس لليهود إنها بس خاصة لليهود لا هذه الأرض زي ما إلا اليهودي برضو للمسيحي المسيحي إلا فيها والمسلم برضو إلا فيها when the Muazzans shout and the towers say, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, you came to some of those Jewish don't know what means the word, Allahu Akbar. Kill the Jew! Rabbi Froman say to them, This is the name of God. Allah is great. All the people here, Hamas, Fatah, Muslim, Arab, we appreciate that from that man with his beard. I was screaming against him that he is going to get in the world to come hell punishment from God for the 
so many blood that he is guilty. He said, I'm not a terrorist, Rabbi Fuhrman, El Chacham Fuhrman in Arabic. I'm only defending myself. I and you, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin used to say to me, could make peace in Hamza Dakika in five minutes because both of us are religious. He did something that, that no Israeli is there to do, which is he actually appeared on a Hamas platform in front of tens of thousands of Hamas celebrants. I saw that as, um, as one step too far. So we've had we've had our disagreements over the years, and it's very it's very interesting because I never know with with Rav Menachem, am I going to be to his left or to his right? I am a citizen of the state of God. My president is God. It's not so much important who is the man, who is the government. All my efforts are because I'm a rabbi. Religious men, and I have all my work is worshiping, worshiping God, whose nicest name is Salam. I hope that America, and especially your president, will be the angel, will be the messenger of Rasul Allah, Rasul Allah to bring peace. That's not to leave any doubt that you are speaking with the lula, lula, lunatic <laughs> uh, uh, rabbi. Yes. There are difficulties, but as my Arab neighbors say, Allahu Akbar, God will overcome. Or in English, you say it, yes, we can. <laughs> All right, so I hope that was, uh, so what you see, I think, if nothing else over there, that within the settler movement, you have this group of people that are, you know, angry and there's the violence, you have the Baruch Goldstein and the supporters behind them. And then you have these other peacemakers and Rabbi Ruskin would be amongst them. We had a, a speaker um, last year from an organization called Roots, which is also a settler working with Palestinians. So settlers and anti-Arab don't have to go together, but there's this battle for the soul of the settlement movements of which the, 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 it's become a very militant right-wing uh, anti-Arab group, but it doesn't have to be. And so it's, it's just how it's sort of played out. It is a, it's an interesting challenge. Um, You'll go through some of the settlements and you'll feel them very modern, very Western, um, with a lot of uh, Americans living in them. And you walk around and you feel very, very much at home. And you'll go to other ones which you know, are quite hippie um, and, and quite, uh, quite, um, quite alternate in their lives. And people living in caravans and in Shkubiot uh, with uh, prefab housing. It's a very different kind of movement. But I hope this has been uh, something that you've learned a lot from. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I've been honest, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, preparing for it. And uh, to that end, I will, prefer, if you'd like to, you now you can unmute yourself. If anyone would like to ask any questions, happy to do it. I'm happy to see anyone wants to see the links. You can go see my father in law, for those who know my, my father in law, Benny. You can go see some videos with him in. See my 
father in law last week with Rangori, and this week is his sister's wedding. But yeah, any questions? Okay, anyone unmute yourself? Going, going, and gone. Well, to that area.